welcome to the My Dialorama podcast. It's quite a rich one tonight. We've got a guest, Thomas Barlow, and I'll let you introduce yourself, Tom. Well, I'm not a rich one, but uh, hopefully I will make this a rich experience for the audience. Yeah, um, my name's Thomas Barlow. I'm the chair of the Media Fund and I uh, work in media reform generally um, around news and topics like that. And in my spare time, I like to uh, do radical history walks around Manchester where I'm based. Uh, uh, we'll be delivering those tours. So if you're interested, check out 0161, the anti-fascist music festival in Manchester to find out about our history tours. Brilliant. We'll put all the links in the blurb anyway. Lovely. And uh, so we're back with uh, my co-host, Coco Green. Hello. Hello. And thanks so much. I'm excited to talk about sci-fi, although we certainly aren't as prepared as Tom is. So he will be taking the platform. Then I only have little bits <laughs> to add and question because I have always questioned how race is deployed in sci-fi films, which I think it is but under the guise of something else. So I look forward to mm -hmm. talking about that. And um I'll also work harder next time to have more top picks. But yeah. it's been busy. Tom is one of four more <laughs> thorough guests. Yes. Yeah. Right. exciting. Sent yeah. us a detailed breakdown of what we're talking about. What did you say, Tom? It sounds, it's you're making that sound ominous rather than like, I, I think a beautiful positive, which it is like, you know. It like, is positive. <laughs> it's brilliant. Know. Hopefully. Well, we'll see. We'll see, won't we? Um, so, as usual, we're going to go through our picks of the week. Sakura, you go first because you've got one. Okay, well, I have one pick for this week, Miss Juneteenth, and it did premiere at the Sundance Film Festival this year, and I believe it was released on June 19th. So, I liked it because it really touched on some ideas that I don't think you see commonly depicted in films around family, black business and civil society. So really, I would say key black institutions. So it's the story of former beauty queen Turquoise Jones's dream of seeing her teenage daughter, Kai, become Miss Juneteenth. And for those who don't know, Juneteenth is the celebration of June 19th, 1865 in Galveston, Texas, about two months after the end of Civil War, when slaves learned that they had been liberated and there was a celebration for emancipation. So as a side note, a few years back, I'd suggested to some Black British acquaintances that we could do a combination Juneteenth Windrush Day thing. Because, you know, I'm not going to do Windrush Day. That's not my <laughs> that's not my thing. But I said it's around the same time because Windrush Day is on June 22nd. And I thought, oh, how fun would that be? And they were like, oh, no, we can't do an American holiday. So we'll only come if it's a Windrush Day celebration like I would do something like that. But you know what? That is fine because <laughs> next year, 2021, I'm just going to do the Juneteenth celebration. So then that way we can just only sing the Black National Anthem and we don't have to do any Windrush related things, if that's the case. So they can do that separately since people didn't want to do a combo one. Haters. So Haters. We well, meet, not that you're carrying it at all, though. Because, I mean, but don't you think that's a <laughs> bit much like I'm hosting and paying for all the barbecue and yet you're oh, like, well, oh, no, we can't do it. You thing. missed what? the most important part. Now now I've heard that. I'm I'm 100% with you. That's, that's Exactly. Happening. All that's you happening. had to do was show up. Oh, so. this is, and this is someone who had made, what was it, eight different cakes <laughs> at the last barbecue she held? Okay. No, yeah, I, see, yeah, and had a, had a written, well, like you, your PowerPoint presentation, she had one for her menu. <laughs> with a, <laughs> with was it like laminated? It was a laminated Right. For wow, you really go in on the event. Fine. Well, you know why? Because I have 
I feel so inadequate because of the way my grandmother would do the holidays. And I'm convinced that it's not going to be right. And I think the worst thing you can do, which people have done to me, they invite me to their house and they serve me crap. And you're like, so you invite me and I have to travel here and you're going to give me this garbage. And you think that that's acceptable. And I think that's the worst thing you can do to someone. So I always think if I have several desserts, if one doesn't come out, there will definitely be a dessert. It's so, the most beautifully American sentiment I've ever heard delivered in the way that I could ever hear it. I once sat at a dinner party with, uh, well, no, we went out for a birthday meal with uh, a whole group of us. But there was a part of the table that was Americans and Germans together. And I've never seen anyone be so beautifully straightforward with the waiters when they asked, is everything OK? I wasn't expecting the barrage of... <laughs> Brutal honesty. And as much as I embrace brutal honesty uh. being in the North, uh, we like to varnish it a little bit. Um, and they were just looking at each other when we were all like, yeah, it's fine. Thanks. We're really enjoying ourselves. And they just looked at us as we just shat on the table. Uh, they, they're like, no, no, no. I have some words for you. You better get a pen and paper. Um, <laughs> So, well, see, the yeah. only reason why I stopped doing that was because it never got you anywhere. So you would complain and they'd say, OK, so yeah. there was never anything that they would do to yeah. fix it. So I don't even bother anymore. It's like, what's well, the point? Because you, nothing will saying, happen. <laughs> They're just like, thanks for sharing that. So can I get you something else? <laughs> yeah, no that's how it works here. So, so yeah, and, I, and that happened to me a couple years ago. I won't name names, but a friend's friend had new years and mind you there were only five of us there i had never he served us something i don't even know what that garbage was it was like some sort of stew gone wrong it was like meat and potatoes and water and i'm thinking people are coming to your house and you're really giving this to me i baked a pie I, from scratch and you uh. couldn't think, don't get me wrong if cooking's not your thing it's not for everybody but if if People, if you can't cook and I'm inviting people over, I'm going to order some takeout. I'm going to make sure that people are going to eat properly. And then had the cheek to say, how is it? And it's like, you're eating it. How do you think it yeah, is? This is awful. I love how someone's going to recognize themselves in this bit. Uh, he, he won't listen to it. I but feel like this should of- not be included because someone's walking, like someone's ears are burning brutally right now. And well, uh, Why would you do that when you invite people over? It's one thing if I just show up to your house and it's like, okay, it doesn't have to be clean because look, I didn't know you were coming, but you, it's like you, you know I'm coming. It's New Year's Eve, and then it got even worse. So he didn't have <laughs> film to show us no entertainment, and someone suggested a film, and he said on Amazon Prime, "That's two pounds." Are you for real? Too you work. He has a good job, and you don't want to spend two pounds so your guests can be entertained. People are something else, like no manners. Anyway. I don't know. I digress. So the level of indignation, <laughs> save for war crimes and poor food, is is. I feel on a par, potentially. <laughs> it um, is, because that's a choice. You don't have to invite people to your house. If you know entertaining isn't your thing or you don't want to shell out a few hundred pounds, then you need to meet at a restaurant and call it a day. Don't invite me to your house and say, I'm going to do it trash, and then I want you to smile <laughs> and accept it because you're not outside. What? <laughs> What's going on you here? You fucking tell them, mate. You fucking tell them. So oh. If you're, you're going to be watching, was it Miss Juneteenth? Ma- Bear this in mind. Yeah, this is. These are all the lessons that have come from the takeaway from the film. Thoroughly prepared well, to have you as a guest or not, as it may be. But that's just it. When you're a guest, you want to make sure that people are comfortable, they're fed, and they have drink. And yeah, it costs, but then that's why it's optional. You don't have to do it. But if you're going to do it, do it right. So yeah. when we meet Turquoise, 
<laughs> Joe, ah, from her mechanic husband Ronnie, working two part-time gigs. One is a waitress slash restaurant manager, and another as a mortuary cosmetologist, and barely making ends meet. In her words, she's making do, but she's really not. In fact, the electricity is cut off on her daughter's birthday, so she really can't afford life. And for reasons never totally made clear, her blind ambition is to see her daughter become Miss Juneteenth so that she can win a scholarship to an HBCU, that's a historically black college university, and have the life that she always wanted if she'd not married and had Kai. So you get the sense in the film that the woman who runs the Miss Juneteenth beauty pageant had high hopes for her, but she was never able to reach her potential. And you imagine it's just because she fell in love and chose a different path in life. But of course, there's consequences for that because she lives a very unstable life. So... It is cliched, but I did like the film because I believe it was a realistic portrayal of contemporary Southern Black life. And by realistic, I mean common, something that a lot of people experience more often than not. And it's very much the way things are happening. So you see that both Turquoise and her soon-to-be, but not quite, because they're still in love in hopes of reconciling and sleeping together, husband, aspire to own something and make a life for their family. And I think that's something, that's a sentiment that I see a lot in the black community, this um, aspiration for entrepreneurship, to have a business, to have your own thing, but you never really see it uh, played out in film where people want it, but they're not able to attain it. And I also like that we get a peek of the social events of black community groups and social clubs. And in this case, it's a Juneteenth beauty pageant and it's provincial, but I think it reflects the behavior and attitudes and values of the black bourgeoisie, which would be the group to really run these kinds of events where refinement is characterized by style, manners, and disposition, and not really reflective of one's actual class or status. So it's, you know, interestingly, or I guess maybe not so, I've been aware of this because that's how my mom really, you know, from a very poor family and through her church, she was mentored by this older woman who had gone through this process herself, right? So she was college educated in the 30s, which was a big deal for anybody, let alone Black people, and really helped my mom to understand what she should enjoy doing, really her taste. And she's really shaped my mom's taste, which has shaped mine, which is pretty different from really my family and anyone else. It comes from this idea that you can become that through your disposition, even if you don't have the money to back that up. So I like that that was in the film. And the only thing that I didn't like really, uh, and this is somewhat of a spoiler, in the end, Turquoise does figure out a way to have her own business because she's a bit lost in the film, which is why she's putting all her hopes and aspiration and dreams in her daughter. And she learns to accept, unlike her own mother, who was never able to really accept her, she learns to accept that her daughter wants has different dreams. And she's learning that I have to support her dream because she can't be my dream. I need my own thing. And even though she had been running a business, she never really thought of herself as being able to be a businesswoman. And it ends that way. And I just thought, well, what about her husband? I think it's a, uh, I just don't like this idea that you get your own individual come up. And I don't find that empowering as a woman. I think it's, everything has to be about family and community. So I wasn't very fulfilled of her just doing something on her own because, you know, what's it for if you can't do it with your husband and in your community, then it's, you know, 
I don't want to say worthless, but that's not a victory to me. So I found the ending unsatisfying, and yet I really enjoyed the film, and I encourage other people to see it. So I believe it's available on demand, but I saw it at BFI. Thanks for that, Sakura. Um, I'll give you my quick picks and then move on to Tom. Right, so I've got my notes this time on a scruffy bit of paper. Look at me. Uh, <laughs> no word doc bullet points for me. Um Right, I've been to the cinema for the first time in months, so that was divine. Even though, for the first half of it, what I thought was like um, was the background noise of a TV in the film was mm. actually a trailer playing from the main entrance of the cinema that we could hear in our screening room because the door was left wide open. What I watched, so I've been waiting for this film for about a year because I um, had heard of it at London Film Festival 2019. It's St. Maud and it's an English independent horror film. Shall I give spoilers? Because I can't really talk about it without spoiling it. Yeah, well, then I guess you're going to have to. I'm going to have to, right. Well, spoiler <laughs> alert. Spoilers. Spoiler alert. Fast forward about five minutes if you don't want to hear them. But uh, I'm still not quite sure what I'm made of it. So s- briefly, um, the story is a uh, young woman um, mm-hmm. calling herself Maud who has been through something tragic. It's a mystery. We're not quite sure what it is. And finds work. This this is set in Scarborough, by the way, um, on the seafront. And she finds work as a private carer to this dancer who used to be famous and has um, terminal illness. She's also devoted to God. You get a sense that she's on a mission to save the soul of the person she's going to be caring for. You're not quite sure where it's going. What I'll say is this. I don't think the trailer does it justice. I don't think the way it was marketed does it justice because it's not a, really a horror film. It's mm-hmm. not full of jump scares. It's. I thought I was gonna. It was gonna be like The Conjuring or something. I thought it was like <laughs> yeah, a film about possession and you know. But it, it's not. That's not what it is. It's in a way much worse. It's a slow burn uh, psychological horror. I think. And it's much more disturbing. It's very much about mental illness more than anything else. And you end up seeing the world through her eyes and very cleverly then seeing there's a juxtaposition of what she sees and the reality of that. And that works really effectively. So there are two very, very, very scary moments to the point where actually I felt my blood run cold. Um, in the cinema which is very rare I've only experienced that in when I've watched um, like Ring or or a really good Iranian horror film actually called Under the Shadow the ending is really shocking as well and it's as I said it, it haunts you so I'm still thinking about it and I had that same slight same experience I'd say with Midsummer, the film uh, that came out by uh, I forgot the filmmaker's name, Ari Aster, I think, who mm-hmm. made Hereditary. That was his second film, Midsummer. And again, during Midsummer, I was a little bit bored. I thought it's dragging on a bit. And then there are just these these really horrific graphic moments that stay with you long after you've watched the film. So on the whole, I thought it's a really effective um, psychological horror film. It's a it's a first feature. So the director's called Rose Glass and this is her first feature film. And it's uh, a remarkable main performance by Morfit Clark, who's uh, in lots of things at the moment. She um, was also in the latest Dave, um, David Copperfield film. 
And the funny thing about that, if, you have, if you've seen it, uh, it's uh, by Armando Iannucci. She plays his mum and his wife. At two different, uh, yeah, at two different times, obviously. Oh. But it, her performances are so oh, seamless scary. that nobody noticed. <laughs> and I hadn't noticed at all that it was the same actress playing both. Uh, as an aside, talking about horror, I don't know if anyone's caught The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, which I didn't expect much of, but it was really scary and a hu- huge fun. And there's a sort of, not quite sequel, but made by the same creators which is called the curse of bly manor tom you're nodding have you seen it yeah no it's it's on after this Uh, that's i'm putting it on after this i'm not a horror fan at all but um i watched the haunting of hill house i know there's a lot of artistry in in horror and i do try to give it a spin uh, especially as the good doctor uh, Mark Commode recommends it so often, but um, Haunting of Hill House I watched with housemates, and we we it, we made an event of it, and it was it's wonderfully well directed and and well paced and judged, and it's uh, smart and involving, and like a, a good horror movie has to be a good drama, it has to be uh, something where I I feel like you care about the characters. So I think this is true actually for all cinema in every genre i think for instance why is die hard such a great action movie right it the first die hard is it has almost no action sequences in it at all like it's it's all character exposition it's this long diatribe about like a marriage falling to pieces you know you you're invested in the characters because otherwise you don't care whether they survive falling off a bridge or whatever it is you know and horror is the same so the haunting of hill house is really you know an exploration of yeah um, i I found it really sad towards the end i remember being quite upset by the end yes and i think this looks like it's going to be along the same lines really so aside from that I mean, that's probably all I'll mention in terms of film and uh, TV. A quick festival recap. Encounters finishes today. So we're recording this on Sunday, the 11th of October, by the way. I'm talking about it again. I'm really hoping it hasn't suffered too much financially this year and it will be back on live next year. And uh, I'm not going to go on too much about it because we've got a couple of articles on the My Dialorama website with our picks. And uh, sort of screen related, I guess. I just want to quickly flag, Tom, you know this, but not the news which I'm enjoying. Sketch length uh, reports presented by Jolien Rubenstein. So he is off The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, which was quite a funny satirical show that was on the BBC, I think, a while back. Anyway, he presents this and it's like a take on... um, what's said and what well, what's covered and what's not being covered on the news and current politics. That's available on YouTube and there's a new episode every Sunday at 11. And that's it for my top picks of the week. Tom, stage Great. is yours. Okay, well, um, I didn't know whether we were talking about TV or not, So, but uh, is that you okay can. to talk about TV? Actually, can I just say, I see you're going to talk about um, Kini Mini. And that's uh-huh. great because it saves me talking about it because I was going to bring it up as yeah. well. Good. That's oh, good. Great minds think alike. <laughs> uh, um, I wanted to mention that I'd watched Nora from Queens, uh, which is uh, a US show that's on BBC iPlayer. And sadly, I have to say that um, over the past maybe 18 months, the best content the BBC has been producing TV wise, producing that it has on its platforms is American. There, there hasn't been very much standout stuff. Uh, and this is 
especially in the arena of comedy and this is again it's um an enjoyable likable uh performance by someone whose name i can't pronounce of chinese and korean i can't i can't if i do it i'll murder it and then i'll be blamed because she uses the name nora there'll be a twitter hate campaign Uh, of mixed korean and chinese heritage um and i I originally found the central character a bit unlikable a sort of self-involved millennial who can't who lives at home with their their family can't do anything really seemingly well it gets stoned all the time and keeps losing their jobs but somehow you end up rooting for them they're like she's really funny she's like a naturally a great physical comedian which is actually quite rare nowadays it's sort of there's points in it where it's reminiscent of charlie chaplin or something i just think she's like it's an underrated skill that it's really underrated in comedy and she she's brilliant she mugs for the camera she twists and gurns with her body it's quite funny um and she's just uh kind of like yeah uh, a warm character with who's who yeah you grow you warm to and, and you sort of like her sensibility and her way of approaching the world and also you learn a lot about chinese and korean america chinese and korean americans which again is maybe a less covered element of american culture um there's certainly some good shows that have been on netflix of a uh, korean american uh, life that i've watched and also actually i've been watching because a friend turned me on to them korean soap operas which are incredible it's really? utterly bizarre like i find them uh, wildly uh, incomprehensible but like uh, you know just obsessively watch them anyway so you know if you really want to go down the rabbit hole check out Korean dramas on Netflix we've showcased them on my diorama just to say my ex uh, my ex podcast partner from four years ago Nandini if you remember uh-huh, her yeah. yeah she started reviewing Korean soap operas <laughs> she's done like video That's... blogs and video blog interviews they're very funny I can see them being very popular because I think as more and more people get turned on to them. The thing I find very weird about Korean uh, uh, sort of soap operas is not just the subject matter, and there's usually obviously something extremely dramatic occurring, but um, and often to the backdrop as well of a dictatorship that they lived under and so forth. So you learn a lot about the history, but it's the music editing is it is so. Um, it's so wild and over the top. It's like a 1930s melodrama, but it's also obviously different cultures, music as well. And um, so you get these swelling strings in the middle of a scene that you think this shouldn't be, this shouldn't happen right now. This is way too much. Um, And, uh, uh, but at the same time, again, like I say, it's just uh, compulsive viewing. Secondly, uh, we did, uh, I showed, uh, I was part of a group that helped show Keeny Meenies, which is a documentary by um, a documentary maker, Phil Miller, who spent four years researching this and wrote a book on Britain's largest military company, uh, private military company, or mercenaries, as we should call them. PMCs is the technical term, but they're mercenaries. And during uh, they specifically cover the work that they did in uh, the work that they did in Sri Lanka. Uh, being involved in the genocide of the Tamils and uh, and even um, other groups as well. And then it ties in how the Scottish police are still training Sri Lankan special forces and their ties to it, but also how the Kini Minis private, uh, the, the mercenary company got shut down after what they 
things that they did in Nicaragua. But then the company continued in the same office with the same personnel under a different name. And we've seen that with Blackwater, with the US mm-hmm. mercenary company. But as the people who work at Declassified UK who put this out have said before, it's actually a lot easier to cover US foreign policy and US uh, affairs abroad because there is an element of congressional or senatorial oversight over CIA and military operations. There is none. They can make things permanently unavailable to the public and journalists in the UK. There is no public oversight uh, that's Mm. publicly available easily so. And in fact, Declassified UK were blacklisted by the Ministry of Defence just a few weeks ago for publishing investigations into British foreign policy and into British military operations abroad, especially around the training of, of Saudi Uh, pilots in Britain to uh, carry out what is being considered genocide in in Yemen. So they've now been not blacklisted, they've been unblacklisted, and there's a parliamentary inquiry going on around that. But that's the backdrop to this film being watched. And it's now available on YouTube and Facebook through Declassified UK. And it's a good old school, if if the British audience are listening, remember World in Action documentaries. Those very hard journalism, Panorama is not even close. Panorama is shock, jock, you know, documentary making. It's not real. really good stuff so really do watch keeny meanies which is the reason why it's called that is that's what they used to call them they were keen to be mean and it's a scottish surname they like to you know they're involved in well quite horrific things so check it out the Hmm. final show that i picked out was utopia and I'll, i'll mention it very briefly because i don't want to give anything away it's basically a show about a comic book that produce uh, predicts the future and um set to the backdrop of potentially a pandemic it's a weird thing to have re-released now well not re-released the there was a, one? well yes there was a british yeah. version in 2013 2014 there's been a u.s version that's been made right. by amazon I think by the same production company who made uh, Dirk Gently's um, detective agency, which was a remake of the British uh, show again and the British thing, because they're sort of made in the same style. So I'm only hinting at that. Um, So it's a weird one to be put out at this time because the backdrop of the pandemic in it it's, it, you know can make it quite seem quite alarmist in many ways and there's some very bizarre happenings that occur in it I, so i ended up going back having watched the entire american version i went back to watch the british version with my partner this week because i'd watched i was ill the other week and i watched the entire u.s version i was, I was like something not quite right about this usually the mm-hmm. money that's put into u.s productions means there's a higher production value and and usually quite frankly they're better or certainly they can last longer you know like the american office versus the british office British office is great but there's 12 episodes you know like the americans can produce consistent the, the the scale of their operations can consistently good quality tv for a long time there was something a bit odd about it so when i re-watched the british version what struck me was the Quality, the, the the very unusual music production um, in in the British version is is really significant when you rewatch it, and also the way that they shoot it. You you start to realise that none of the shots in the British version, no one is ever central to the frame. Everyone's at the corner. There's a lot of space. You're looking at very weird coloured rooms with someone talking to someone else, but they're in the corner of the shot. And I didn't realise that until I'd watched the the US version, which is shot in a more standard way. I think also there's um, 
something about the production design of the US version, which is quite kitschy, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, they, they sort of go for this indie kitsch. And it, it reminds me of sort of like um, films that maybe uh, may like, I'm just trying to think a hundred days of summer or something like this. There's oh, sort of I love genre. that one. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a whole genre. It's, I love it as well, but there's a whole genre of sort of indie kitsch American rom-com. And this has that look because there's, because they've tried to find a sort of genre or production design that feels mm-hmm. in some way familiar. Whereas if you watch the British version, it's, it's so weird. It's such a weird piece of art. It got canceled. They actually tried to do a second. They did a second season. It could have been made into five, but it never got done because no one was watching it. But the producers went on to make the TV show humans, which was a big hit mm. um, in, in Britain. But it, it was, it, it's such a niche watch that the first season is a complete story in of itself stands alone. And I'd recommend everyone watch the British version of Utopia and then maybe watch the US version and compare them because they do tell slightly different stories in different ways. And they both offer a lot. And it's quite an interesting, it's just a very interesting thing to do because I I very rarely compare the two sets of production, but there's something very stark that shows the different ways of approaching creating uh, content. I just wanted to also mention on the, the thing about Juneteenth, uh, people might be interested in Grayson Perry does a road trip across the USA because the first episode of that is set in the South in Atlanta and it's him meeting upwardly mobile new black African-American bourgeoisie of Atlanta and then also sort of more community focused people and Black Lives Matter people. And this was all recorded last year prior to the, you know, it was going to be, you know, it's obviously set against the backdrop now of the election and the Black Lives Matter movement in the US. I think for those who are quite comfortable and au fait and aware of African-American culture, it won't really tell you anything new. And and certainly, you, you know, the I found if you're aware of ideas like intersectionality and, and privilege, then, you know, you're not going to learn anything new but you do hear the stories of interesting people that don't get covered very much um well you know i'd like to watch it but i must say for me what's always missing is like i read this article and um you know if i'm allowed to go back to finish my phd i'll be using it and it was written in the 80s and it says like we don't talk about economics when we talk about black life and to me that's always the piece that's missing is that They'll tell you that there's a black bourgeoisie, but nobody wants to crunch numbers to say, okay, what's their wealth? What do they own? How much is their house worth? What's their education attainment level? How much is their income? Who are they responsible for? Like, no one wants to tell you talk turkey. Yeah. They just want to show you the trappings of wealth. Yeah. And then beautiful people on the screen, just like people who say, oh, like, we're, and that's the thing, I, I'd be altered to deceive anyone ever uses the languages of working class. Because te- we tend not to use that in America, right? Everyone's middle class yeah. or we just use terms like the community and no one says, no, we're working poor and this is why. And then that's the problem is all you can tell is stories. You can never back to what I was saying before. You can never talk turkey and mm-hmm. talk about what's the defining characteristic of black people. It can't be culture, right? Mm-hmm. That's absurd. But that seems to be all anyone wants to talk about as opposed to mm-hmm. crunching numbers and looking at the economic costs of slavery and mass incarceration no we avoid talking about poverty and economics and class in favor of talking about identity and culture in fact that's something i should point out 
it's um, an issue we're going to be talking about in relation to the Century of the Self, Adam Curtis's documentary, that we'll discuss in a future podcast episode when we have Tom Barlow back again with us. For now, we're going to move on to our main focus this week, which is uh, revolution and social change in sci-fi. Go for it, yeah. Why did you choose those specific films and series? So I've, I've picked out Elysium and The Expanse. And, and I couldn't really tell you why to begin with, other than they're like conceptually interesting. But as I re-watched them and engaged with them, um, I started to think about revolution in sci-fi like sci-fi or, or social change a change in sci-fi like sci-fi is probably the most explicitly political content uh, you know or genre and so often very clumsily really you know to the point that it can be parodied or mocked um all genres are political and all of them tell us something about the world but sci-fi often sets out to do so two of the most famous examples obviously in 1984 and brave new world by george orwell and aldous huxley respectively and in those actually they're quite bleak insofar as both of them come to the conclusion that there is no escape from these dystopian societies that they portray. In the case of um, Brave New World, it's a society where everyone has to be drugged up and kept happy all the time to to sort of get over the sense that there is no meaning to their lives and um, to also help them get through the fact that if you do have freedom, freedom means conflict and brutality and unpleasantness uh, and a life that you wouldn't want. And in 1984, it's a highly surveilled society where everyone is controlled and there's just no escape from it. And, you know, maybe the modern world has a flavour of both of those things um, uh, or, or more than a flavour. Um, but I picked Elysium because basically it, it talks about a future where the global elite live on a paradise world that is built just just out of uh, just orbiting the earth. They can live long lives with the, it, this extremely uh, high quality health technology that they have. And the rest of the human population live on a planet or on earth, which is just um a, a dusty shithole uh, according to Elysium mm-hmm. it's it's just in tatters and people basically scrub out miserable livings working in, in factories we're not entirely sure why uh, and they have these horrible health you know people if they have health conditions can't get to them fixed you know and yet on Elysium Everyone can live for nearly forever because they have these beautiful gene technologies that can change everything. And of course, this is portraying a world that could very well come to pass. That the, the genetic technology is going to be available in our lifetimes that enables people to live maybe to 150, 200 years old. Like that's almost certainly going to occur within our lifetimes if we live long enough. Will that be accessible to the majority of humanity? Almost certainly not, unless there's massive social change. So in Elysium, how do they combat this? How do people recognize they live in a world where there's almost like another species of humanity now that exists and they, they're not in that club? Well, what do they do? They ally with criminal gangs who try to smuggle them onto Elysium. And most of the ships that fly off Earth in t- towards Elysium get shot down. And the ones who do make it often get deported. But a lucky few might make it into someone's house, use their gene technology and recover from the health condition that they've got 
uh, before getting deported. And that's kind of the, the bleak reality that we live in. And without wanting to spoil the movie, I'm yeah, we to, uh, in I'm this podcast, we just assume people have watched it. Um, yeah. Uh, how does it end? Well, Matt Damon, Matt Damon, <laughs> bless him, uh, saves the world. And he does so through sacrifice. He sacrifices his life with his radiation sickness and his cancer that's overwhelming to give everyone on the planet citizenship of Elysium. And so the automated health technology flies down to Earth and starts giving it to the people. And that's how the world ends, <laughs> uh, how the film ends, rather, not the world. Uh, though maybe it could do what's what's going to happen now that everyone's becoming healthy is everyone going to mm -hmm. become healthy you know uh, sort of we don't really know now it seems to me that if you could make health technology that's that flawless you probably could make technology that would shoot down people uh flying onto your space planet um uh, pretty flawless as well but i think yes you know i understand the need for a protagonist in this film but this comes close to this sort of this big man idea of history. You know, the, the mm -hmm. idea that history is changed by one person. That's one of the flaws with this. Uh, uh, you know, it's fanciful in many ways. You know, what are people working on? Why is the planet in shit? Why, how are people still living there? You know, there's lots of confusing questions about it. Or is there a shortage of resources here? What are people making? These are all fanciful, weird questions. But for me, what's interesting is how it presents how you achieve change in a, in a society mm -hmm. that is incredibly unequal and is clearly supposed to mirror basically the situation between the minority world, what some people call the first or industrialized world, and the majority world, or which some people call the third or developing world, right, in within the, the world as it now exists. Um, that suggests, you, you know, and what they're trying to say is, look, you know, people are trying to immigrate to human traffickers, to find a better life where they can live healthy and full mm -hmm. lives and what you know and and that's the method of change according to elysium is that people just need to keep sneaking into this beautiful world that's been created for the rich and the elite only and somehow break their way into it um matt damon saves the world by making everyone a citizen of that place through one person's actions through acting with these criminal gangs and so forth like that and that but if you take out the protagonist story really the only hope for social change in elysium is if you basically stand on the heads of the others and matt damon does this in the film he like basically s screws over like sick children mm -hmm. so that he can get on a ship you know like he he has to rob and kill and he has to work with these criminals he is you know who drug dealers and brutal nasty people so that he can get the cure that he needs it's this very individualistic but, yeah. response to mm -hmm. like like you've got an entire planet of people who are two planets and you've got one planet and the thought is i will stand on the heads of others so i can be part of that elite club yeah so well no that's that's basically so that's the 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 lesson that's to to be taken for the audience from elysium uh is essentially stand on everyone else's heads be be the be the most brutal be the most ruthless don't be a working joe that works with other people and builds community but get ahead by any means necessary and hey if you feel like being a good guy mm -hmm. and, you could yeah. help everyone else out as well but that's what we were saying earlier right it all comes down to the same thing when we were talking about the great grayson perry duck it's the fact that it's always an individual story and we've lost the common 
fight. It made me think, you saying that, it made me think that very few films actually portray any, I guess, level of cooperation or revolution on the part of the people that want change. It's always down to this one person. There were very few films that wanted to show the coming together of a community and their uh, collaboration and their work, uh, their solidarity would bring about change. And that's why, for example, there are very few films made about the Haitian revolution. There are very few films that show uh, black people coming together as a class and working together to bring about change. It is, and it, it is uh, kind of makes you more like waiting for a savior because something I was watching uh, a talk by Chris Hedges today on YouTube. I love to procrastinate, and mm -hmm. something that he was talking about, which was you know he wasn't the first one to make it, but of course it was important to say that don't forget Martin Luther King started alone and ended alone. And that's not the narrative that you get. The narrative that you got was Selma where everyone's marching with him and he's got support. No, no, that's not when it ended when he was talking about, we are coming to Washington for our check. That's not the Martin Luther King you get to hear. You get mm -hmm. to see a totally different figure in the popular imagination. And I mean, I think it's similar with uh, Rosa Parks. They talk about her individual act of defiance, not, the 20 years of community community organizing she'd done prior to the bus boycott and then the 40 years after when she was in the north fighting for rights you don't get those stories you get yet yeah, individual sacrifice when that's not it it has to be and there's no other way except for community and that's not the part they want to show because it's a more complicated story right but i think you can still tell the story through have a character driven story but rooted in a community and group of people. And just like Rosa Parks' husband, no. he got her into activism <laughs> and you never hear about him. Very telling. Mm. Rose is the truth though. Why yeah. Why is it that we don't hear about her husband? And he was an activist. He got her into activism. So did her grandfather. And they are not part of the story for this black woman who was rooted in a black mm -hmm. family and a black community. But, yeah. yeah. And, and you see it, um, for instance, in analogous struggle is is the indian anti-colonial movement which gets reduced to gandhi who mm -hmm. let's yeah be fair that as a as a person was not always great um and uh, uh you know there's, there's lots of problems with him personally but of course there are with everybody like as well that's the other that's the other problem with lauding an individual to represent an entire movement of human beings that have come together but um there, there is no perfect leader and and they have to be lionized but uh, for liberals especially will lionize certain elements of someone you know and they'll they'll lionize martin luther king jr um or gandhi and emphasize their pacifism and their uh you know to, to encourage people to actually be mm -hmm. not pacifistic but to be passive mm -hmm. they're like, yeah you know they're like look you know you don't have to do these things Martin Luther King didn't have to. Well, yeah, he did. And he said, that, you know, it's quite famous now that a riot is a voice of the unheard. And, you know, actually, you know, he talks about socialist economics and claiming wealth back for the people. And, of course, Gandhi grew up in South Africa. And really, um, the anti-colonial movement in India had been several generations, as long as it started in the 1850s, at least. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, like you're talking a century of struggle being reduced to one guy. Maybe you've heard of Nehru, you know, maybe like, 
you know, you, all the like the, all the different mutinies, all the different movements for change from the most diverse and populous uh, place on the planet uh, is reduced to this one guy, and he's supposed to be lauded as an example of why you shouldn't do things. You shouldn't do that. Gandhi wouldn't do that. You know, I mean, like, which is contrary to the movement that he kind of stole his reputation from, uh, as well as probably to his life, because actually, he again, he he said pacifism shouldn't be passive. It should be like a head of steam that breaks down all doors before it. He engaged in strikes and occupations that were, you know, um, a lot more. And of mm -hmm. course, the movement itself was a lot more violent than than maybe he professed it to be. So anyways, I I find those things difficult in the way that we rewrite history but it's done in the way that also we rewrite the future and this in this case the way the future is being rewritten is saying look there's all these people outside of the system outside of the elite and they essentially are the people of color and the working class of the, the world right and their only hope for salvation is either a hero which is basically what every movie promote Again, <laughs> yeah. like i say i understand the need for a protagonist i think in the era of superheroes it has gone too far and superheroes are this ludicrous um disempowering narrative formula that basically says look you know oh isn't it wonderful someone's going to come along and fix all this at some point like if only there were some mystical beings that would do this you know but i, I understand why it occurs and it's part of human storytelling but I think there are better ways. You look at the working class TV of the 80s in America and Britain, mm -hmm. whether it was Porridge and Bread mm -hmm. or whether it was Roseanne and Cheers, right? You can tell stories about working class people. Like, who was the most likable character in Cheers? Like, Norm, you know? Like the, <laughs> oh, I the... thought you were going to say Sam. Sam was... I like Sam and Diane. After Diane left, I just... It wasn't yeah, Sam Long was a bit of a sleazy <laughs> git, wasn't he? But Norm was everyone's <laughs> like, you know, hey, it's Norm, you know? It's the... <laughs> unionized yeah. posty who's like you know he's a bit of a slacker but he's my kind of guy you know he was a slacker yeah yeah but like like people fought very hard to so that jobs were wouldn't be that hard do you know what i mean like people struggled so that our life of yeah. toil wasn't such a life of toil like and we should celebrate the slacker and they were there and again roseanne is great working class american tv you know again like i say porridge is set in prison in britain or you know whether it's the likely lads or boys from the black stuff or you know there's a great history of telling stories from a working class perspective that bring people together um avida same pet and stuff like that and i just uh uh, I, I I can't no. think that it's impossible to tell these stories, but it start, happens in sci-fi. I was going to ask, I've got in sci-fi, if, but... no, if there were any such tropes that you had seen in sci-fi? Mm -hmm. Well, to counterpose that, I ended up picking out The Expanse and Elysium, but I ended up coming back to Battlestar Galactica. And mm -hmm. Battlestar Galactica... The Expanse is the successor to Battlestar Galactica. It's the, it's the best sci-fi show of the decade, so I'll, I'll talk about it more in a tick. But in Battlestar Galactica, it's a show about politics, religion, and identity. People don't, you know, and, and it's quite explicit, more so as the show goes on, but it's set against this backdrop of fleeing as refugees from uh, 
a murderous robot race called the, the Cylons who've annihilated and genocided the entire human race except for a, a small collection of ships that are constantly running away from them. And so that's this great dramatic backdrop. There's spies, there's intrigue, there's murder, there's death, there's assassination, right? But it's about politics, it's about religion. You know, where does religion and belief come into everything? Who should run things even in the case of an emergency? And season three was actually written during over the course of the famous writer's strike in the US in 2007-2008 and actually gets interrupted by that and after they come back off strike they start writing an ep episodes where the workers on these ships who've been risking their life and limb to keep these yeah. ships going you know and you've been excited by the star fights and the cylons and the you know the the political intrigue by the elite but they'd always included some of the working people and then they start telling more and more stories about the people who are working on the ships and you're like more into what's going on with them and also the prisoners on the prison ships and the mm -hmm. prisoners start mutinying and the workers start saying listen we've been working flat out for now months nearly two three years whilst we've been on the run people keep dying we can't keep working at this rate you know and they're like you have to you're essentially under military law now you you are irrelevant all that matters is getting the ships out and fighting the cylons and they're like we can't do this and they form a union and, and they do this during a time that it, the political elite who were their representatives have formed basically a close alliance with the military elite, the command of the military. So the president and the admiral are now really close and worked to, before there was tension between them. And it's the civilian government trying to make sure the military government don't, the military elite don't take control. Now they're working closely together. What you get is this balance that comes from workers coming together, forming a union, and it causes a lot of problems. It's a lot of strife, you know, like, because uh, mm -hmm. it's in the middle of a war. Mm -hmm. yeah. But even during the middle of a war, the union is eventually recognized and workers are given a place at, at the table of decision making. And that's and they're now seen as a necessary balance and part of governing a functioning society. And it's actually a really interesting story. And I think it's overlooked a lot because when people think about Battlestar Galactica, they think about all the action and the death. Like, I can't believe that person was a Cylon and, oh, you know, but. Clearly, the writers have been radicalized by their own strike, I think. But maybe not. Maybe they just took an opportunity to write this into, you know, because, again, there's stories about religion. There's a whole cult that's built, you know, uh, during this show. And um, it's it's a, it shows you that it can be a brilliant part of drama. And it shows that also that what they went for is a hero coming along and solving all these problems, you know. I'm going to make sure the workers have time off or something like that. No, the elite resist it. They say, nah, no, you're not. You're scum. Like, which is how we're treated, right? Isn't it? It's like how normal people are treated. We don't think about it too often because we're paid off with cheap food, gizmos, blah, blah, blah. Right. But ultimately, if it came, comes down to it and we were like, well, actually, I'm working too much here, too hard. This doesn't work. I'm not getting paid right. I can't afford a house, blah, blah, blah. They're like, sorry we can't do anything for you and that's how it starts of course because at first they go they're very polite and they're nice about it we understand it's difficult but eventually they keep going no we really need this and, and the elite go listen you need to shut up now stop stop coming to us with these problems we've got other problems and you're not one of them you don't deserve to be considered mm -hmm. and i thought it was really realistic in that respect you know and but it shows that you can make great drama from it as well yeah well drama within the sci-fi yeah you know because again 
sci-fi is like any other genre it really only works when there is good drama in it you can have all the high concept um <laughs> art that you like in sci-fi and at least it lends itself to more high concepts than anything else but you will um you will cover cropper people will be like oh yeah this is just a bit tacky and weird after a while you know but uh yeah you need that good drama so it shows it could be written into any genre but i certainly think sci-fi so in a way this tells us about three real real three of the key ways that people talk about um creating change one is a very individualistic escape orientated approach right and one is a collective workers approach you know where, where a class comes together and recognizes its interests and gets a seat at the table the expanse is that middle road the expanse is um yeah, it, it, uh, sorry, I've been talking a lot. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll the unleash guest. the expanse and I'll open it out. <laughs> that's cool with you guys. Yes, go ahead. I've written some bits. So if anyone's familiar with Stanley Robinson's Red Mars trilogy, this could be seen as being set directly after it. Red Mars it charts the colonization of Mars from the, the first hundred people who colonize it in the sort of 2030s, all the way to it declaring independence and starting a, a new economy really that's kind of quite mutualist cooperative it's basically all the all the almost all the economy is cooperatively owned workers own kind of what they do and stuff like that and it's dedicated to science and and uh, to uh, discovery and to making the planet habitable and livable and it's a journey of discovery uh, but it's red mars is a trilogy that's very sort of it's very thorough in its political discussions as well as its scientific ones. And it, it seems very plausible. And a lot of people like that. Well, anyways, in this period, so imagine we've got just the other side of that. Earth and Mars are now separate nations in the expanse. And they are seen as nations. And outside of the Earth and Mars, there's the asteroid belt and the outer planets, little moons and things like that, that are colonized and mined for important materials, mostly by Earth, but also partially by Mars. And there's almost a subspecies of human that's growing up now on the belt and has done for generations. Some of them have, a lot of them have genetic deformities because they don't have access to the right drugs that stop them from growing um, too tall in zero gravity and things like that. And they live in with this permanent threat of food and water being withheld from them. Uh, and food and water are very precariously obtained in this part of space, you know, like, I mean, they're very, very far from anything. Uh, and so if there's any trouble, or any sense that things are getting thin, if a shipment doesn't come through, then it's the poor, it's the belters who don't get access to the food and water. And this is the backdrop for The Expanse. Now, what happens in The Expanse is we meet a series of protagonists, there's a lot of interwoven stories, and there is uh, some amazing big things that occur that that basically drive the story along. And I don't really want to talk about those partially because I want you all to go and watch it. Like I say, this is the best sci-fi since Battlestar Galactica. It's the most high-level production. The, sci the, the sort of space set pieces are sort of breathtaking at points. So sometimes you finish a five-minute piece and you're like, I, I, I didn't breathe during all of that. It's quite incredible. You didn't realize how tense they were until it finishes, you know, and I think good horror does that often, yeah. you know, um, or good suspense and good thrillers. Uh, so it's these wonderful elements. It has political intrigue and it has personal, uh, quite a unique and eclectic set of characters. But if we look at social change in the expanse, what's interesting is the outer planets, uh, these belters, are 
we slowly see the formation of a nation. And this nation comes from a ragtag group of uh, uh, different gangs. Some of them are criminal gangs. Some of them are sort of revolutionary terrorists who attack Earth or Mars. Some of them have ships and some of them have high political ideals. And what you see is the formation of a, a nation in that liberal conception of it, the way that the US or France with their revolutions formed, you know, they, they rise up violently against their oppressors as they have mm. to, to create a new nation and a new navy and police force and stuff may are in the offing to be formed. You know, this is, and they see the ones who are politically high-minded, they see we'll only get freedom when we have a navy, when we have nuclear weapons and the power to sit alongside Earth and Mars as a separate nation, which is the way that the US viewed itself. We need a navy to sit alongside britain to be considered a real nation state you know they didn't there's no in the expanse there's no workers collectivity there's no like we're we're material this isn't a communist revolution we're not going to materially all be better off so i can see now the parallel with the french revolution so it's yeah. sort of the liberal elite that is now yeah. finally being hit is yeah, this... and they call on those ideas of nationalism, right? Yeah. You know, it's a sort of, you know, and you can see it, it's like Arab pan-nationalism, mm -hmm. for instance, just as an example, uh, uh, classic examples of these liberal national revolutions, where you say, we need to throw off the colonial oppressors, and I'm the one to lead you to do it. You know, like, uh, uh, and there's a bunch of us that will lead you out of this. And um, we're all going to be better off because of it. Not because we've got a program or, or a specific manifesto or a set of ideals that we believe that we're going to share the wealth with everyone, but just that if we are independent and have that power as, as an independent nation, we will be better off. And there's no sort of like, and if we take all the resources and put them in common and share them around each other, we're all going to be yeah. better off. It's just that if we're a nation, we will be better off. If we have the power to basically meet out violence against others, we will be better off. And of course, in the process of forming, say, a navy and an army and so forth, you then have to create a police force. And that violence that you're going to be able to meet out against other nations to protect yourself is also then going to be used against your own people, is my fear. Now, that's still being explored in The Expanse, so I don't know where it goes. What it doesn't have, which Battlestar Galactica had, is the sense that workers need to be represented through, say, a trade union or collective organising. It doesn't have that. You know, there's different storylines. There's a sort of... There's... A, there's one where you're following a bunch of a ragtag sort of group of belters who are just working on a shit uh, mining ship and you're following a, a sort of another storyline is a detective on the belt who's basically a shitbag you know you don't particularly like but for some reason he gets an obsession with one particular case and you end up following this case and then you're following like a politician on earth and you're following a um you know a marine from mars and you're like what the fuck is this all going on here you know like and so like i say i i've rewatched it now for uh, this is the second time and, and i've drawn out these themes that weren't totally apparent you realize this backdrop this story that's being told about the creation of a nationhood it is is the backdrop it's part of right. every, all the stories that are being told but it's not obvious because you're following the characters and also the characters 
it's quite an eclectic group of characters. People die, people disappear, things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get a tie to pe- people, and then they're you're not following them any longer. You know, they just get written out yeah. or whatever. So I think that's it, where that's what lost me. And you're right. Now come to think of it, because I thought it's not it's not slow paced, and that doesn't tend to put me off. Because I was thinking of a series like uh, Better Call Saul, which is probably a better example than Breaking Bad. I find the rhythm mm. so good, the character development so smooth and complex. Uh, but that's exactly because it's also very focused. And I think where it lost me is where a series like um, The Wire. I had that same problem with The Wire where I got about two episodes in. I was like, I don't understand what is going on. There are so many characters, so many strands to this. The Wire is when you when you rewatch it two or three times, a manifesto. Like it's it's a manifesto and an exploration of America. um, Yeah. And that's why you need that complex backdrop. Uh, You're right. And you, you kind of have to stick with it. Yeah, and it all comes out, you know, and it's still not totally obvious. It's not as obvious even as The Wire, but it, it, as I say, you know, there's some great set pieces. You've got a big screen or something like that, you know, high def, you know, really watch it on that. Like I've I've really not seen anything like it, but it was too expensive and sci-fi dropped it because people like this is too niche, you know. And only Jeff Bezos has enough money to buy it now. Yeah, and only because oh, his depressing. kid liked it. Good know? one. And, you know, it's one of the few things I'm thankful for him for doing, um, which is, you know, very shallow of me. But it's an extraordinary piece of work that needs to be continued and, you know, seen through. Uh, and just to talk on a couple of other things that I picked up on when I was thinking about sci-fi and politics and social change, you get Deep Space Nine, which is a Star Trek show, and Babylon yeah. 5 in the 90s. And... They're essentially the UN in space. Everything's going to be solved through diplomacy on a station, you know, and it's that height of sort of liberal internationalism. It reflects the era very, very much, whereas like Star Trek is the next generation is space communism. You know, we're all going to be perfect in the future and technology is going to solve anything, everything. You know, it's space communism, but without the struggle for us to have got there. They never really talk about like riots and revolutions to get there. It's just technology came along and solved everything. Um, and then there's a re- really crap film called In Time with which we've like, both um, seen. Uh, what's his name? Justin. Timberlake. Yeah, <laughs> with Justin. Like that actually. Uh, okay, I liked it too, but I was trying to hide that I liked it. We were going to judge you. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really liked it, but it, th- there's a lot of plot holes and stuff. It's kind of bizarre. You, but you've got a glo- you've got a global elite who ha- who can live basically from everywhere, and everyone's trading time to live. Basically, Justin Timberlake, he takes the terrorist insurrectionist approach to creating social change. Him and like a member of the wealthy elite basically just start robbing banks and giving it all to the poor. <laughs> I'm like, this is dope. <laughs> like, this is, I'm, I'm down with it. It probably wouldn't work in real life, but it's like, you know, it's another approach yeah. to viewing social change. And, um, and then you've got the Matrix, right? And the Matrix is like the superhero movies. Matrix approach to to change is we all live in this oppressive system, but we have to wait for like a godly superhuman to come through. But in the interim, it, it's um, in the interim we all escape it by yeah. the ones of us who can recognise it. We escape it by stepping outside. So it has a superhero element, but it also has that sort of. 60s 70s communal escapism that's very prevalent in the west you know that hippieism like back to the land we're going to create the 
new society in the shell of the old away from the corruption oh i didn't see that in the matrix i for some reason right i watched it quite a while back but it left me feeling with a uh, a sense of it being very cynical and borderline fascistic in tone do you know what it reminded me of a little bit in in its um oh. I guess moral framework of the uh, frank miller batman films well comics um there's right, something yeah. there's something where it's it's extremely disdainful and hateful of the rest of the world and only a small elite are deserving <laughs> of escape and yeah. that's what i was i was thinking of too because remember when he gave his best friend a bunch of time and then he used it for drugs it's like okay and yeah. he had a really, well he seemed to love his wife and children but he decides to drug himself to death and then the wife blames him and says well you should have known he was going to do that it's like who are you married to that sounds like but it it is also because i've worked in the nonprofit world for many years worked for grant makers as well and there's still this belief that you you know there's the worthy poor and the unworthy poor but in general poor people can't be trusted with money because if they could they wouldn't be poor but people feel good giving the canned food that they don't want themselves yeah. to other people as opposed to money and something I used to hear frequently you know years before uh, when I worked for a different nonprofit is that well what if they buy drugs and alcohol it's like I buy drugs and alcohol so it's okay for me to buy drugs and alcohol and I don't sleep outside so I don't have to deal with rough sleeping the psychology the stress the anxiety the fear and the cold right because it also helps you actually live in climates that aren't meant to you know it's not meant for people to sleep outdoors and yet they can't do it what's going on here and that's just yeah. so i think there's it says a lot about how we view people who are not in power it's like well kind of like a belief people who are fit to rule do rule like that's almost it. like the that's like the, it and i think that's the common common theme yeah. across these um, yeah these exactly. films yeah there's a great quote by george orwell um which is uh, he says, it's curious how people take it for granted that they have a right to preach at you and pray over you as soon as your income falls below a certain level, you know, <laughs> like, um, and he wrote that in Down in Paris in London, you know, so, you know, when you're poor, you can be preached at and prayed at and prayed over, you know, you're less than. And that's what I'm saying about hippieism. You, what you're right about uh, The Matrix is it shows that, like, the Matrix is popular amongst conspiracy theorists yeah. and, and hippies, right? Um, I did and, not know the latter. I didn't know well, either. I think it suffers so from the former, though. Tell us more why it is. Well, it's popular. You know, modern hippies or crusties are very, you know, uh, they're, they're very much entwined with conspiracy theories. If you look at the current conspiracy theory demonstrations, a lot of them are hippies allied with fascists. It's quite interesting. And that's why you're right to bring out fascism. They call it red pilling the alt-right yeah. when they when they try and convert someone to being a Nazi. Um, and it appeals to that sense of other human beings sheep being human beings being sheep and being less than you and you're the one in the know. And really you don't have to act on that knowledge in a way that benefits anyone else. You just have to feel superior to other people. And that's what hippies did. You yeah. know, the, the hippie you're, you're very the right. That's exactly it. Yeah. They felt better than other people. And they were like, I can't, we can't make our better pure world around all these other scum. We'll have to do it elsewhere. We'll have to go and move to the middle of fucking Montana or something like that. Because we can't be around these dirty, poor fucking idiots 
right and build a better world it it's not escapism it ha- the, the roots of fascism are in the same place because fascism and hippieism appeal to the same class of people the middle class right and that middle class sense of superiority that they are better than others and therefore deserve better things they express themselves in trying to find those things in different ways but ultimately it's that disrespect and disregard for humanity. And yeah, most people haven't drawn that lesson out of the the uh, matrix. Most people would look at it and again, like I say, look at the superhero element of it, the G- the Christ-like, you know, fight uh, uh, against uh, the machine and what have you. I'd, I'd and- rather that interpretation. I feel like it's more innocuous than the, uh, <laughs> the, the escape the sheeple and let them die. But that's what they do, isn't it? Take this pill. You can join yeah. us. It's ba- Mary Bren ba- band of um, enlightened fucking, you know, uh, who also like hippies take upon this sort of penitence of being poor. We have to eat porridge out in the real world. You know, that's what we do. That's what hippies do, isn't it? They go back to land. Oh, well, we live off the land and we don't, we eat real food. Yeah. You know, we don't live in luxury like you sheeple. You know, it's like uh, and and again, that would have been subconscious. I don't think the Wachowskis were thinking that when they wrote it. But like when I look at the class formation, the ideas of the way that people think about changing the world, I, I had a very recent experience with someone who became a conspiracy theorist, mm-hmm. told me that they talked about the Matrix, said, you've got to do like Neo, which is we've got to wait for the next generation to come through who will recognize that they shouldn't be vaccinated with all these super ch- with microchips because they believe there's going to be microchips in the vaccines, right? Mm-hmm. and so to do that i have to get off grid because that's the only way so, like instead of going like okay let's say bill gates is the bad guy he is a bad guy he's like smaug he's sitting on a mound of treasure that could like save the planet right like so he is the bad guy whether he's <laughs> secretly planning to vaccinate us with microchips or not so what do we do about that well the conspiracy theory says stay smug escape society mm-hmm. and the sheeple the revolutionary says we get together we get yeah, that wealth we, get, we engage we with it back. yeah, yeah. And, and we get that wealth back and share it out amongst ourselves for the betterment of everyone and the only way we can do that is by teaming up so you know there's that self-indulgent superiority and it comes you know conspiracy theorists tend to be people who are well off enough to yeah. have to imagine threats to their lives and they've got than, the luxury to do that they've got the luxury yeah, to leave it all behind and they've got the, yeah they've got the luxury to think there's a conspiracy that's targeted directly at me because you're wealthy enough to afford those cheap sarnies and you you live you've got a roof over your head and <laughs> you're like you're okay so you're not living on a rubbish dump in jakarta they, they can't <laughs> afford, like someone there's not going i think bill gates is going to put microchips in these fucking vaccines. What it reminded me of was 19th century romanticism, right? A literary movement like the Beatniks. What I find they have in common is this, is this smugness of being... They're able to indulge in escapism, right? Yeah, exactly. You've put it very well. Indulge in escapism. Because ultimately Mm. they believe they're better than everyone else. (laughs) That level of superiority. I find that among some... And this is why I have an issue with it. Some... And I'm not going to call it sci-fi, but fantasy fans. You know, the, mm. the really hardcore ones. Yeah. And there's that sense of they refuse to engage with the world as it is. And they get massively militant. I, I find I find the intellectual and emotional energy that is put into uh, superhero movies are clearly the only things that will make any money any longer. And they hold the rest of the industry up. Yeah. 
and the fanaticism around this uh, and the pride that people take in their geekdom like i understand the desire to have felt like you were an outsider and now you're inside and you enjoy it and i really love kevin smith's podcasts mm-hmm. I, I i listen to fat man beyond and i i i love that they're enjoying themselves but there's a part of me it's like this is ludicrous this is an extraordinary waste of time and energy and that you can be so passionate about it and feel somehow still like you're rebel outsiders but that you determine yeah. the cultural movements of, of these billion like small nations have less wealth than one of these movies why are we all obsessed with superheroes is it because we all want someone to come along and save us i don't know you know like i'd love to hear someone have a smart discussion about it. yeah on that note we uh, are due a conclusion yeah that's it for us so we've talked about sci-fi and revolution mentioning the expanse uh neil bloomkamp's uh elysium battlestar galactica and different approaches to um social change and revolution and who ushers it in is it an individual a class the workers a small elite uh, the enlightened or the powerful and the rich so that's it. We we might have a second episode on that down the line once Sakura's <laughs> watched all five seasons of The Expanse. <laughs> Until then, you'll find all the information we talked about, all the links down in the blurb below and more information on our website, www.mydialorama.org.uk and you can follow us on Twitter at MyDialorama and leave any comments and feedback. Thank you for listening and see you next time.